G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We know that for decades, knowledge and technology have been advancing at breakneck speed, where today's supercomputers seem to be able to do everything and do it better than we humans. Digital assistants like Siri and Alexa can answer all our questions, give recommendations about restaurants and entertainment, and there are lots of smartphone apps that can transform our homes and recommend items for us to purchase. But the explosion of artificial intelligence has some worried that computers and robots may soon take over. Robots, surveillance, algorithms that know us better than we know ourselves and are increasingly being used to control the masses. Some are even concerned about the place of God in a brave new world where super intelligence takes over. Well, a conversation today about the future of artificial intelligence and how we might think about and prepare for the future. And our privilege today to welcome renowned mathematician, science philosopher and Christian apologist, Professor John Lennox of Oxford University in the UK. He's just released his latest book called 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. John Lennox, welcome back to 2020. Thank you very much for inviting me on. John, the title of your book, 2084, a development on George Orwell's dystopian novel and his predictions for 1984. Take us into your choice of title. Well, my choice of title was suggested by an atheist professor at Oxford on a journey going to debate him on the God question. And we were discussing what we were writing. It's Professor Peter Atkins, who's a prolific author. And when I told him what I was writing, he said, I've got a title for you, 2084. And I have acknowledged him in my book because I think it expresses exactly one of the main things, but not the only thing that I want to talk about George Orwell, in his dystopian novel, 1984, introduced us to things like Thought Speak and Big Brother. And you've already mentioned uh, surveillance technology in your introduction. So that forms the bridge into the current state of things. Uh, there's a number of authors you've drawn attention to. We mentioned George Orwell. Another one, Aldous Huxley, who wrote the book Brave New World. And you've drawn a comparison to the way that Orwell presented the future and Huxley presented the future, different ways of looking at things. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's right. The ideas of these men have been very influential, but there was a fundamental difference in their approach. Orwell had the view that we will eventually, human beings, will be overcome by oppression from outside. But in Huxley's vision, very interesting, 
you didn't need Big Brother to deprive human beings of autonomy and so on. He had the view that people would come to love their oppression and to absolutely adore the technologies that eventually destroy our capacity to think. And there's a lot of evidence around that we have both things going on simultaneously. So it's not a matter of which one might have got their predictions of the future right. Actually, both of those are coming to pass. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's right. Um, <laughs> when you think of George Orwell, he, he was afraid that in the future books would be banned and Huxley feared there would be no reason to ban them because no one wanted to read one. <laughs> well, uh, you, you can see the threads of both of those ideas. Uh, the, the problem is, I think, that we have a love-hate relationship with technology. You mentioned smartphones and so many of us wear them, but we're less, I, I think, aware, actively aware that these are tracker machines, these are surveillance machines with all the potential of not only watching what we do, seeing how we meet, recording our, who we meet, uh, recording our conversations, but also putting us under some kind of social control, as we're seeing, sadly, in the Xinjiang in China, which is very much in the news in the United Kingdom today. Now, you do draw attention to a lot of authors. Uh, your research is sound and you bring to light a whole lot of dimensions. But there's one I'd like to just get you to have some reflection on, and that's the author Dan Brown, who's made his own predictions about merging of humans with technology. And if we're talking about artificial intelligence, uh, this is the sort of dimension that perhaps a lot of our listeners might be interested in today. Well, Dan Brown was drawn to my attention by someone who had noticed that he'd written this novel, Origin, which featured uh, an artificial intelligence genius as one of its evil characters, so to speak. And I thought it would make a good foil to the other book that features prominently in my book, and that is the work of Yuval Noah Harari, the Israeli historian. And both of these books are read in millions. And what Brown's book is about, and it would seem to be an attempt by him to answer some of his own questions, and there are two very big questions that interest all of us, in fact, about humanity, where are we coming from and where are we going to? And it's in the second of those questions that Dan Brown has this futuristic artificial general intelligence scenario where humanity merges with technology and he calls the result technium. Now, of course, it's, it's good science fiction to a certain extent, but the other side of it is that some leading thinkers like our astronomer royal, Lord Rees, are taking it seriously. Let me give you an example of that. A quote by Lord Rees is this, we can have zero confidence that the dominant intelligences a few centuries hence will have any emotional resonance with us, even though they may have an algorithmic understanding of the way we behaved. In other words, he thinks 
that intelligence, whatever it is in those days, will be very different from human intelligence today. And that involves biogenetic engineering, perhaps drug enhancement, cyborg involvement, all this kind of stuff. You mentioned big questions that we ask, questions about where do we come from, where are we going to. I wonder if we can focus on that first one. Can artificial intelligence answer that question, where do we come from? Oh, I don't think so, really. I mean, this is <laughs> this is Dan Brown's book, and what he's doing is taking an evolutionary scenario and trying to uh, work it out from a famous experiment that was done in 1953 by Miller and Urey, for which they won the Nobel Prize. And that experiment was to simulate what they then thought to be a primitive Earth atmosphere, put that into some kind of a flask and pass electrical discharges through it, and that produced four or five amino acids, which are the basic building blocks of, of, of proteins. And then what uh, Brown cleverly did was to look very carefully at subsequent science. And apparently the flasks that were used for that experiment in 1953 were kept. And when they were reinvestigated by Jeremy England, who's a very well-known scientist in the U.S., they were found to contain more amino acids. In other words, over the years, some more had been produced in the mix. And that was enough to trigger Brown's imagination to say, okay, if we allowed that more and more time, what would happen? And in his book, his fictional anti-hero takes this and tries to extrapolate using an AI system and lo and behold uh, watches as a double helix appears, the, the structure of DNA that Cricket Watson found. And so he reckons here we have solved the problem of the origin of life. But it's very interesting, and I report the research in my book because Jeremy England, who did it, uh, disavows what uh, Brown has done. Jeremy England actually uh, does believe in God. He's a, he's a Jew, and um, he has published against Brown. But, you know, it's a kind of author's license, but there's no evidence for what is claimed for AI at all. AI doesn't tell us about the origin of life. In fact, we're totally ignorant about the origin of life. All these years after 1953, we've really made very little progress, except to discover it's far more complicated than they thought it was then. They weren't remotely near a solution. So AI can't shed light on the origin of life. So we are back to... The question of God. And I wonder whether you've got thoughts on whether Christians ought to be worried about 
God in the future if artificial intelligence develops to a point where it somehow or other as a super intelligence tries to replace uh, the God of the ages. And I wonder whether you've got any thoughts too on what the alternative, what atheists may be fearing from the idea that artificial intelligence is gaining in this uh, like snowballing of technology and knowledge. Well, there are two things we need to make clear, first of all, that we're talking about two different kinds of artificial intelligence, and that's very important. The first kind is the stuff that's actually working at the moment with our series, Alexas, with our surveillance technologies, facial recognition, and all of that. That is a system that does one thing and one thing only, but does it faster and better. And it's one thing that normally requires human intelligence to do. That's why we say it's artificial intelligence. It's not real intelligence. The system is not intelligent, but it simulates intelligence in that it produces an output that normally we need a human intelligence to do. But artificial general intelligence is the quest for some kind of system that can do everything that human beings can do, but do it much better and much faster. That is the quest for a super intelligence. And there are two directions of that. The first is to enhance existing humans and re-engineer them until they become gods with a small g. That's Harari's idea. The other idea is to start from scratch and build some kind of artificial life that isn't doesn't depend on biology, perhaps on silicon or something, and then upload human brains onto this thing. Now, this is all speculation to the nth degree, in my view, because both of those scenarios, especially the second one, face a huge barrier and that is consciousness. You cannot build something like a super intelligence that is not conscience, conscious unless you're content simply with building something that simulates intelligence but isn't really intelligent. But some of these people want to actually develop something that's really conscious and intelligent. Well, that's a very unlikely thing. Why? Because we don't even know what consciousness is, let alone know how to construct it. But it's quite clear that robotics is developing very fast and we can begin to harness some of these AI systems together. And there are things to be scared of, even with narrow AI, as it's called, because we're watching at the moment a whole population, a minority population of Uyghurs in China and Xinjiang being suppressed and oppressed by the looks of it by AI and facial recognition techniques. That's scary because it is impinging on human rights and human freedoms. On the other hand, we can be thankful for the advances of AI in medical diagnosis, for example. There's great promise there. And I'm very enthusiastic about young Christians who are bright, scientifically minded, getting involved in the good side of this. Let me say this. AI is like a knife. You can use it to do surgery if it's a good knife, or you can use it to kill people. 
And we need more of the folks in there who are using it, so to speak, to do surgery. Now, what about the God question? Well, the agenda at the moment, which is one of the reasons I wrote my book, is being driven by atheist writers. Harari's an atheist. Uh, Dan Brown doesn't seem to be quite sure where he stands, but it comes across as fairly atheistic, except that. And this was the thing that really struck me about his book. His main hero, Langdon, the so-called professor of symbology at Harvard, he makes a couple of comments that gave me the impression that Dan Brown is thinking there may well be evidence of intelligence behind the structure of DNA. And that, that I found very interesting indeed. Well, all through history, we've been faced ever since Genesis 3 with the human drive to become as gods that goes back to the original temptation. If you eat the forbidden fruit, you shall be as gods knowing good and evil. And that's where Harari picks up. And right through the centuries, we've had this in the Babylonian emperors being worshipped as gods, in the Caesars being worshipped as gods. And now we have uh, a contemporary historian with huge readership in the millions uh, calling a book Homo Deus, the man who is God. And that move to displace God, which we've seen, of course, in secular enlightenment thinking, and it spreads rapidly in our world today, I feel that we've got to combat it, which is another reason I, I wrote my book, because God is increasingly relevant, especially when we look at even the speculative scenarios that artificial general intelligence throws up because and the main one i talk about in my book is by a professor of physics tegmark and he has 10 or so scenarios some of which the superintelligence is a benevolent godlike thing in others the superintelligence gets fed up with humans and destroys them or keeps them as pets and all this kind of stuff and people are genuinely worried about this. And therefore, I feel it's important to talk about the true God, and in particular, about the fact that this quest for Homo Deus needs to come to terms with the fact that there already is a Homo Deus, a man who is God, a superintelligent human, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. We will continue this conversation in just a short while. Our privilege today to talk to Professor John Lennox, mathematician, science philosopher and Christian apologist of Oxford University in the UK. He's released his latest book called 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. Our discussion is about superintelligence, artificial intelligence, and the growing knowledge and technology and what that might lead to. John Lennox is our guest. John Lennox, Professor John Lennox, who is a mathematician, a science philosopher, and Christian apologist. John, let's talk about this superintelligence. Do you think that the algorithms that work now to identify all of these things about us personally will lead us in any way towards a knowledge of God or to a rejection of the knowledge of God in the coming times? It could work in both directions. 
I think, you know, if we take biological life, at the time that Miller and Urey did their experiment and thought they'd solved the problem, the origin of life, which they hadn't, we now have discovered that life itself involves uh, a base in a genetic alphabet, the human genome, the genetic code, so that we could say that life is word-based. Now, that, to my mind, is very strong evidence of the truth of the biblical claim, in the beginning was the word. All things came to be through the word, that there's a word, there's a mind, there's a God behind the universe. And similarly, the more we can invent clever technology, and we've done quite a lot of that, that shows that the human mind is creative. Now, another biblical claim is that God made human beings in his image. And God, being a creator, has given us potential to be creators. So, again, the very technology, to my mind, the fact we can do science, if I can speak as a scientist for a moment, the very fact we can do science and describe the universe in mathematical language is, for me, one of the most powerful evidences that God exists. And that was true of the pioneer scientists. They believed in a, a god of order and so they sought order in the universe so it was their faith in god that was the motor that drove their science and advances in technology to my mind serve to confirm that not to deny it so the battle over god will will continue but i don't think uh, our creative technological products is any evidence against God. It's evidence for God. John, the idea of upgrading humans, uh, creating cyborgs, uh, the way that you might meld humanity with some sort of a chip that somehow upgrades humanity, what could be the outcome of something like that in an attempt to do that type of upgrade? Well, it's very hard to say. I mean, I'm wearing glasses at the moment. That's an upgrade if you've got bad eyesight. I might be wearing a hearing aid. And we can see as micro-miniaturization improves that all these things, we started with simple glass lenses. I wear spectacles, but I could easily wear contact lenses. So they become closer and closer to being part of my physical setup. And one can imagine in the future that that increases so that we get bits of technology uh, melded into our human life. And of course, we're very grateful for many things like that, for prosthetics, for helps with vision and muscle strength and hearing uh, and so on and so forth. Now, that, in a sense, is unproblematic when what we're doing is helping to support what we've already got. The problematic stuff comes when, as we can do now for essentially the first time in history, that we can meddle with the, say, the basic um, genetic core of human beings and interfere with the germline and then determine what kind of human beings will be born in the future. 
Now, one of the things I mentioned in the book is the fascinating, prescient thinking of C.S. Lewis back in the 1940s when he wrote The Abolition of Man and his book, That Hideous Strength, which is, again, uh, a futuristic novel. But Lewis made the point that if we get to the stage where a group of scientists start to change what it means to be human technologically, what they will produce is no longer human but an artifact. And there is this chilling statement that the final conquest of science will be the abolition of man. And that, to my mind, is a very dangerous side of this. Now, many leaders in these fields are concerned about this. Elon Musk talked about AI as summoning the demon. Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, was very concerned. And many of these people are banding together to try to construct some kind of ethics that will apply to all of this, to get international agreement. They're sufficiently worried about how far the developments might go, that they want to try and put ethical checks on them at this stage. Now, all of us can see that technology outpaces ethics every time. And secondly, that it's very difficult to get ethical agreement even within a country, let alone internationally. So it remains to be seen exactly what will happen. And I don't want to second guess what, what happens in the future, but clearly we will make huge strides as micro-miniaturization um, takes over. And who knows what will come? So... The upshot of that is we need very serious thinkers who will think through the ethics of this. We need protection from the, the dangers, the obvious dangers of surveillance technology already in our world to say nothing of what will happen in the future. Is there a challenge there, John, to Christian scientists to work on a way that you can incorporate human morality into artificial intelligence? Or is it likely that there'd be multiple streams anyway and one may not have the influence to keep one of the others honest? How do you reflect on morality and artificial intelligence? Well, if you look back at the history of the West, for centuries, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition has been the foundation of ethics. I was watching Jordan Peterson recently give a fascinating lecture on Genesis. And when he came to the statement that God made human beings in his image, he said, you know, this is the cornerstone of civilization. And then he added, we neglect this at our peril. Now, we're at the stage where we are neglecting it because we no longer have an agreed worldview. And so I think, in a sense, you're right, there are going to be different streams. On the other hand, and it was C.S. Lewis pointed this out a long time ago, there is, fortunately, a common element in moral convictions around the world. There may be certain differences, but people tend to have reverence for truth, for human life, and all this kind of thing. Uh, whatever religious or philosophical basis they have for that. And on the basis of that, we could talk about that kind of morality 
and building it into these systems. Now, folks are already trying to do this because we have actual problems at the moment. Take, for example, AI systems that are driving autonomous vehicles. Then you have to face basic moral dilemmas. If your autonomous self-driving car is going down a road and it comes suddenly across a scene where there's an old lady walking across the road carrying her shopping, and if the car twists and avoids her, it will plough into a line of schoolchildren waiting for a bus. You've got to program the system so that the sensors will make the best possible moral decision in that situation. That's the kind of moral dilemma, of course, that we teach to people in ethics classes. But there is a lot of thought going on on this. And of course, it gets much more serious when you're thinking of autonomous weapons, where human beings are scarcely involved at all, where the system selects a target and destroys it without reference to anybody. There are huge ethical problems, but they're much nearer to home than people realize. You mentioned smartphones at the beginning and doing our shopping and having books suggested to us. But many people do not realize that those systems are harvesting a vast amount of information about us that we don't know about that's totally irrelevant to the selling us books, but which is being sold on by them to third parties without our permission. And this is called surveillance capitalism. And Susanna Zuboff, who's one of the world's authorities of it from MIT, writes a book with that title, Surveillance Capitalism, warning people that this is hugely problematic because it's an invasion of human rights, privacy, and selling intellectual property without our knowledge. John, let's come back to the title of your book, 2084, and reflection on dystopian novels. We mentioned 1984 and A Brave New World, and the idea that the concentration of power ends up in the hands of just one man. And that's alongside the biblical idea in the guise of Antichrist. You reflect in your book even on the idea that world government is not a wild and irrational idea right now. And I wonder whether you've got a moment to reflect on how we might think about the future, given we've got biblical prophecy that guides some of our thinking as to what's coming. Well, I think it's important to think about it so long as we think about it carefully because when we come to anybody's statements about the future, there tends to be a great deal of hype and wild speculation. And I'm afraid nowhere is that more true uh, than in understanding uh, biblical prophecy, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation. But what I think is very important for Christians is to realize that, firstly, the Bible does talk about the future. And Jesus himself told his disciples that he would return. And secondly, when he was on trial for his life and they put him an oath 
and asked him if he was the Messiah, and he replied in the affirmative, and then he said something that absolutely enraged them. He said, you shall see the Son of Man, referring to himself, sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So the claim that Jesus would return is central to the gospel. It's not some product of hot-headed thinking centuries later. It's what Jesus himself claimed. He claimed he would die, he would rise from the dead, he would ascend uh, back to the realm from which he came, and he would return. And so he, with warnings to his disciples not to speculate about the future, he did tell them that certain things would happen. And in Paul's letters, particularly his writing to the Thessalonian church, and we understand he was only there three weeks, and he told them that they ought to be very careful of trends in their society towards the deification of man, and that was already present with the Roman Caesars, because in the future, that kind of seed idea man being God would reach a harvest and there would be ultimately a very powerful leader, obviously, who would claim to be God. Now, this isn't in the kind of uh, metaphor-laden world of the book of Revelation. This is in the plain, straightforward um, narrative text, historical text of Paul's writing. And what I do in my book is to very gently point out that in the book of Revelation and in Daniel, you've got these beasts. That is a metaphor, but it's a metaphor for something. And I point out what C.S. Lewis said long ago, that metaphors usually stand for something real. And it's clear that these beasts stand for powers or a world power or world leaders. And we read this chilling idea that the whole world is brought under sub and has to take a mark that controls buying and selling. Now, that's not far-fetched at all, because that's part of the futuristic scenarios, some of which are given to us by Professor Max Tegmark, etc. It's exactly what we're beginning to see, social control. And in China, there's a program ruling it out right at the moment. Now, I think it's very important for Christians not to rush in and say, ah, this is it. What I want to say is very carefully to say, look, the biblical scenario has credibility. Why? Because in what we can determine of its elements, we can see them gathering together. I'm not predicting when it will happen or exactly how it will happen, but that it will happen is a very credible thing. And my message in my book, and that's why I, I wrote this, was to say, not only to Christians, but to everybody, is look, if we're going to take seriously the futuristic scenarios of a Tegmark or an Orwell or a Huxley or anybody else, why don't we revisit the scenario that's been around for 20 centuries, which has the great merit 
of having very strong empirical evidence, historical evidence behind it, in that Jesus demonstrated his claims by what he did, and particularly by the resurrection from the dead. And that is my objective, not to be speculative about revelation, but really to say what appears to be clear in the plain, straightforward historical type text in the New Testament, and then building on that using the metaphors carefully to try and elucidate it a bit more. And John, as we draw our conversation to a close, I know your intention is not to frighten people for the future, although there are some things that you write about that we could be frightened about. But this anxiety that you could have about the future, your encouragement in looking to Jesus and his return becomes a foundation for not losing hope. I wonder whether you've got any thoughts about how we approach these things, artificial intelligence being a part of what well may be a very dystopian future, but the way that we would not lose hope. Well, perhaps the easiest way to do that is to refer to Harari's agenda for the future. He says that there are two big issues for the 21st century. The first is solving what he calls the technical problem of physical death. And he says we're going to solve that soon. And it will mean that people, although they can die, they won't have to die. The second thing is that we will then devote all our attention to enhancing human happiness. And that will involve all kinds of technological advances, biogenetic engineering, possibly re-engineering the human germline and all this kind of thing. So that, in his words, we humans will become gods with a small g. Now, what I want to say to that is the Christian faith comes in there and gives us very credible responses to both of those. Firstly, the solution of the death problem, Harari is far too late. It has already happened. The resurrection of Jesus in the past shows that he has conquered death. That's the first thing. Now, secondly, the idea of trying to um, produce immortality and enhanced happiness. Well, of course, that is the kind of quest that's gone on since the time of the Garden of Eden. And the answer to it is in the gospel, because Jesus Christ promises to everyone who repents and trusts him for salvation and forgiveness for the mess that they make of their own lives and those of others, he promises to them peace with God, but a very special thing, and that is the gift of eternal life, a quality of life that will survive physical death so that we shall be uploaded into eternity, if I might use that kind of expression. And all of us who've, who've trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, we shall never die. And the promise, of course, is to live with him in a world in which there's no suffering, no pain, no COVID-19 at all. And that promise is credible because one only has to look around to see what effect faith in Christ has in the people who believe in him. And 
that's why I wanted to end my book by bringing that in so that we realize that sitting looking at us in the New Testament is the solution, a real solution to all of these problems. And my final point is that many of these pundits have got it exactly wrong, 180 degrees wrong, because they are reaching out to become God. The central message of the New Testament is God has reached down and become man. And Jesus Christ is the true homodeus, the true man who is God. And it's through him that we can have a real solution to these questions. And by a real solution, I mean this. All prior utopias and the utopia that's promised by people um, thinking along these uh, artificial general intelligent lines, the big problem with it is it does not deal with the problem of human sin. And Christianity faces that head on. And we don't only think about the resurrection of Jesus as conquering death, but the death of Jesus as providing a basis where we can have forgiveness and a relationship with God that's based on true morality, ethics, and gives us real hope. And the wonder of the whole business, to my mind, is that this is not religion in the sense of trying hard to keep a set of rules for years until we work our way into enough positive uh, good deeds that God accepts us. Christianity is the reverse of that. It says that we cannot do that because of the flaw in our natures. And God will give it to us as a free gift of eternal life, provided we trust him. And that's the crucial thing I find in this world, Neil, that so many people, they're prepared to work for God, but they find it very difficult to trust him. And that is the heart of Christianity, learning to trust God and put the weight off our lives and our failures on him and to receive from him as a free and permanent gift, the gift of eternal life. John Lennox, honour to you for being able to interweave that heart and soul into your latest book. And I think you've whet the appetites of so many listening into our conversation today. Let me point them to the book. Your book is 2084. Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. It is a very, very important read for those who are thinking about the times that are upon us. And I uh, want to say thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us. Mathematician, science philosopher, Christian apologist, Professor John Lennox. Thank you so much for joining us today on 2020. Well, thank you very much. I should say to the listeners that there is a special website for the book, 2084book.com. And you can find many interviews and things on my website as well, johnlennox.org. But thank you very much for this inter interesting interview. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.